you've heard the term, uh, see it to believe it. Yeah, you gotta see it to believe it. Or another ver- version of that is I'll see it when I believe it. Well, I'll believe it when I see it. So I want you to think for a second. I want you to think about a time that you've either heard or said, you gotta see it to believe it. So whether it could be like me, you say you'll clean the car, but you gotta see it to believe it, right? After months of filth, you're, you're saying you're gonna do something, but you're not sure. It may be, um, you gotta see it to believe it. When somebody that usually overpromises and underdelivers making a promise, maybe it's, and then the examples go on and on. So this is a crowdsourcing moment. When have you either said or heard, you gotta see it to believe it? Will I take a bite of bacon? Exactly. I don't want to talk too much. I want to eat bacon today. When have you heard something like that before? Disneyland, Coliseum, Israel. Okay, so, so Disneyland, you got to see it to believe it? I'm spitting bacon out. The Coliseum, like which one? So when you said Disneyland and the Coliseum, I totally thought the LA Coliseum. I'm like, that's not even a thing anymore. Like, now it's something else. Sophie or whatever. Sophie. And Israel, totally. I'd check that box on the last one for sure. Where else? Maybe your favorite band or your favorite artist that you love to listen to the music, but you gotta see it. Yeah. You know, something. A band or an artist. There's those artists that are just better live than they are on their record. And you're like, you just. And you're like, no way, they had a thousand takes. How do they sound better live? Yeah. And you're just like, man, you just, you just got to see it to believe it. Or like, watching baseball on TV is compared to seeing it live. <laughs> that is a true story. Yeah, I, might not, I might be the only one here, but I think it's incredibly boring. I promise you're going to like it. I promise you're going to like it. You just got to see it to believe it. Trust me, you're going to like it live. What? Politician promises. I'm just going to go ahead and leave that right on the table and move on to the next one. Go ahead. Or like when something's been restored or somebody else were a part of something that was like trashed or it, it didn't, it wasn't like vibrant and then like, look, it, you have to see it to believe it. It's totally transformed. Yeah. We did this thing that you did not think we could do. In, a, in this example, a restoration of a car. Like, man, it was rusty everywhere. And all of a sudden now it's this glorious, beautiful thing. So this idea of seeing it to believe it. Um, a few weeks ago, we were in the gospel of John and we were talking about Thomas. And Thomas was like, you got to prove it, right? You say that the, his friends saw the resurrected Jesus for a week they had been telling him and they're like ah you got to prove it you got and it's this is taking that this passage that we're looking at today is just after that and it's taking this idea one step further and we're going to be in John chapter 20 and John chapter 21 we're going to be in two different places and you're going to hear a lot of scripture today and you'll hear why in a moment so as we finish up the book of John there's two concluding statements one at the end of chapter 20 and then the other one at the end of chapter 21 
There, for some people, they actually think that chapter 21 is an addition to the gospel. So John only wrote to the end of chapter 20, because as you'll see, this is like a perfect finishing statement to a passage. Now, I don't believe that. I believe that chapter 21 is almost like an epilogue. It's almost like a, this is the main part of it, but there's some other things that are important, and we've been looking at them as witnesses. We've been, and so here we are, end of chapter 20. He had just spoken to Thomas, and this is what he says in the end of 20, and then I'll read the end of 21. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then it goes on at the end of chapter 21, as Brandon showed, and as he talked about Jesus, um, John and Peter and John, excuse me, Jesus and Peter and Jesus and John. Then Jesus, uh, John makes this statement, says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So at the end of, the, of his whole gospel, John is making this statement. He says, hey, there have been so many things that I could tell you about that it could fill up all the libraries of the world. Now, I want you to keep in mind, at the time, there was a very, very famous library. They didn't have public library systems. I mean, this is before they bound books. It's not like you could go check out a library. They, like, scrolls were extremely hard to come by. But in that time, there was a very, very well-known library in a place called Alexandria. So the library in Alexandria, which is in northern Um, Northern Egypt, excuse me, Um, at the time of John's writing, which is about 90 AD, okay? So 60 years after the resurrection, John is writing this gospel to his people. And his community is a participant in that. Notice in verse 24, it says, we know this testimony is true. So the Johannine community probably the church in Ephesus would be like, yeah, what John is saying, check mark, we, we agree with this stuff. And so he would know in around 90 AD, as this was re- written, of the library in Alexandria. And this library at the time had about 400,000 books. So think about your local library, like the one on First Avenue, the big one, right? No idea how many books that has. But the ease of access to books that we have now. I mean, I was sharing a book with somebody 15 minutes ago, and they ordered it on Amazon, and it's probably going to be at their house in the next 24 hours. Crazy access to books. At John's time, 
He, there's no such thing as a library except things like Alexandria. And there's so many books there. What he's saying is all the things that Jesus did that I could tell you about, it's like an infinite number of things. So I have an infinite number of opportunities to tell you about what Jesus did. But he does not choose to share all of them. And he's very intentional with which ones he has chosen to share. Because look at what it says in, verse, uh, in chapter 20, verse uh, 30. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He did many of them. But these are written. I want to uh, focus in on the word signs for a moment. Not the old Mel Gibson movie that has a terrifying view of an alien that's shocking if you have not seen it. But the word signs, it's the Greek word simian. Um, now, if you were to read and listen to all of John's gospel, which is how they used to do it. They didn't used to just get up and take a passage and expound on it. They would read the whole thing. They would listen to the whole thing. If you were hearing it, you would have heard that term simian used multiple times. And so what John is doing, he's giving us a cipher. He's giving us the, you've now read this whole thing. You've heard me use this term seven different times. And in his understanding, seven is the, term, is the number for completion. He uses the, uh, the term I am seven different times. Think about seven days of creation. Right? So he's very intentional with using this term and laying out in his gospel these little breadcrumbs for you and I as we listen to go to them and like, oh, that's what this is about. Oh, that's what this is about. And while he could have given an infinite number, he chose these seven miraculous signs. And why did he choose these seven? What does it say? So that you would believe. Right? So what we're going to do is instead of me taking the time to just expand and expound on one of these, we're going to do something that I think the early listeners of this gospel would have done. We're going to read large passages of scripture, large chunks of it. And rather than me expound on it, what I want us to do is what they would have done together. I want us to ask just a few questions about what's standing out and what we're learning and how this passage is going to point us to belief in Jesus as the one where we get life and life to the full. And so we're going to take time not for me to unpack, but because we believe that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. We believe that the Spirit of God inspired the, the human authors. He worked through the human authors to orchestrate 66 books of the Bible, ranging 2,000 plus years from 40 plus different authors. And he's the, he orchestrated all that. We're going to let him be the one that opens our eyes and expand the text as we do it together. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to read all seven different signs. And I'm going to ask us three different questions for each of them, and we're going to crowdsource it. So as we're listening, as you're listening, and as I'm reading these passages, I want you to ask yourself three questions. 
The first question is what does this say or what does this story say to you about human nature? What does this story say about humans? Second question, what does this story say about the person of Jesus? What is he like? What can he do? What is he capable of? And the third question, in what ways does this story affect your life? Okay, so these seven signs that we're going to go through this morning were all given so that you would believe in Jesus. John's unashamed about that. So let's look at the seven signs together. The first sign, if you have your Bible, we're going to be flipping a lot. This is John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Like I said, we're going through a lot of scripture this morning. So let's dive in. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in, at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the what? This is the first of the signs, the first of the Simeons. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, showcased what he was really like. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. So sign one is Jesus turning water into wine. At a wedding, miraculous first thing. So we're gonna crowdsource this together. The first question is, what does this tell us about human nature? So as you read this passage, you're thinking about this, what does this tell us about what people are like? Bacon bite. (laughs) That means you have to talk. Yes, they have expectations. What are the expectations that are really in this passage? What was that? Uh, hmm. Well, his mom has expectations of him. Yep. That he can do stuff. Yeah, Mary kind of knows. Mary kind of like, yeah. It, and Jesus is like, my time's not yet come. Yes, Mary did know. You don't need to sing that song at Christmas anymore. Mary did know. Just want to throw that out there. 
just gave you my least favorite Christmas song, but that's another thing. We'll wait for a couple months. So they had expectations. I mean, this is a wedding. They were, this was a lavish Middle Eastern wedding, lasted a week. It's no good to run out of wine at a wedding that's supposed to last a week. What else? Totally. So there's uh, people, I mean, you can say people are cheap from this story. Like this is not a story of generosity about people. It, it shows us people typically give the expensive stuff when your taste buds are not hindered. And then they give the, poor, the, give the good stuff first and then they'll give you the poor stuff. But the bridegroom are, is being acknowledged or given credit for. You gave the good stuff now. What else? What else do you see about humanity? People are cheap. We have expectations. God uh, means, maybe not means to, but disrupts common things. Yeah. Normal things to show his power. Yeah. And it speaks to us. Yeah, so in the midst of all this, this is normal, right? People go about doing normal things in life. Going to a wedding is a normal activity. I mean, it's a special one, but it's, it's not like out of the ordinary. This is a normal wedding. God interrupts into that. I mean, you see that, and this is a little bit of an undercurrent, there's shame involved in this story. Like, you don't, you don't run out of wine. Like, and so people keep on, there's expectations that are heaped on other people, and then shame is kind of the, the attachment that happens when expectations are not met. You ran out, how dare you run out of wine? The cheap, we, we give shame. So now, in light of that, this is what we're learning about humans. Now what do we learn about Jesus in this story? What does Jesus do? What is Jesus like? They can buy. Yeah, Jesus listens to his mom. It's not, it's not Mother's Day, so we can't go there fully. This is Father's Day. So ultimately, this is where you, you flip the script in John 5. It says he only did what the father said to do. So happy Father's Day. The father told him to do it. But he does it, right? Look at, that, look at that Father's Day juke. That was impressive. Okay, anyways. Somebody, what are you saying about Jesus? He listens. Yeah, he, think about this. The Son of God, remember, we've already heard that this is God in the flesh that dwelt among us. God took up residence. He tabernacled among us, it says in John 1. Your request changed his plan. Yeah. He said, it's not my Mm, it's amazing. He's willing to listen. What else? What else do we learn about Jesus? He's fully God and fully man. Yeah. Which part is listening? That we don't get to know that answer. What was that? He uses people to accomplish miracles. Like. What did he do in the midst of this passage? Did he lay hands on anybody? No, he just said, pour some water and then pull it out. The servants were the one that were doing the work. 
And he, he utilizes humans. These selfish, non-generous, shame-heaping people to accomplish his te- will. He seems to be compassionate towards arbitrary things. Yeah. Like, what, this isn't, like for us, this doesn't seem like a big deal, but he's compassionate here. Because like, what happens if he doesn't show up? Shame. Think about being the bridegroom and you're throwing your wedding and you run out of the one thing you're not supposed to run out of. What's going to happen? The, the ridicule that's going to be given to you because you don't do anything. You didn't do your job. And what does Jesus do? He interviews and, and takes on their shame. He says, I'll make sure it's covered. And, it's, and he doesn't get glory for it. He just says, let's it be. Mind-boggling. The one who glory should be given to, right? Because notice, what did it say in verse 11? He manifested his glory. He showed it off. He showcased his glory. All the things that he's worthy of, he says, I don't need it right now. Mind-boggling. Takes on their shame. Covers up their shame. I mean, we have the saying that he brought the better wine, right? Like, I love this passage. He brings the better wine. He, he doesn't just give secondary stuff. He gives good gifts to these people that don't seem like they deserve it. You can say something? Well, I just think he knows it's not just a wedding. Like, it's, it's the picture of the wedding. He's the master of the feast. He's the bridegroom. Like, he, when he shows up, he's, he, he knows all that. There's, and he's part of something and seeing something architected much bigger than what this little... That is a good iPad case, I hope. (laughs) He's part of something larger, bigger, grander than what they are at the moment. And he's orchestrating it. So, I want you to reflect. 30 seconds. I'm just going to sit in silence. What does this say to you? Or how does this affect your own life? Personalize that. What does this say about you? How are you like the humans? What does it say about how you think about Jesus? What changes? What morphs? I'm going to take a minute. That was the first sign. Now we're going to number two. Flip over with me to John chapter 4, verse 46. John chapter 4, verse 46. We're going to read up to uh, verse 54. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. 
So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So we have not only him turning water to wine, this is the healing of the royal official's son. Same questions. First question, what does it say about human nature? We're gonna, now that we've done the first one, we're gonna move these along a little bit quicker because we still got a few of them to get through. So what does it say about human nature? We're frail. We die. I mean, we get sick. We have pain. There's suffering that humans experience in the world. Also shows that we can be out of control. Right? The, this, this man came to Jesus out not able to do anything about his own son. I mean, imagine that moment for a second. Like, as a father, to see the difficulty and pain of what your child is going through and have zero ability to do anything about it. Totally. There's desperation here. There's a lo- I mean, this, this man does show love for his child, right? Which is great. They'll do amazing things. What else? That is the assumption, yes. Usually, I mean, verse 48, you got to see it to believe it. Right there. And so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. People typically want to see something before they believe something. They want to show it to me, prove it. I I want you to, and Jesus is acknowledging that. Yeah, most people here are going to want to be shown something before they're going to be willing to believe something. Which is why Jesus says to Thomas, he says, blessed are you who saw, but blessed are those who believe and do not see. Because we don't get to, we don't get to see it to believe it. We get to just believe it. But this, in their day, they have the opportunity. What does it say about Jesus? Compassionate? Yeah. What else? Power. His power. Tell me, how do we see his power? He has a higher authority than what? Okay. Yeah, there's power, there's authority. What does he have power to do here in this passage? Heal from afar. He doesn't lay hands. There's no holy oil flowing. There's no, there's just... He speaks and something happens. There's death and then he speaks life. Yeah. So here we have people wanting to see. We have, and yet we have Jesus not seeing, but still having the power and authority to accomplish more than what people around him are able to do. He can heal, that's a basic one, but not that basic, right? 
Jesus has the power to heal, to remove fever, to bring somebody that's on the verge of death back to life again. What does it say about your life? What you think, what you believe about Jesus? What's changing and morphing? Moving on to number three, the third sign, John chapter five. John chapter five. Let's read this one. This is verse, starting in verse two. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going Um, Another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This pool is not like a two inch wading pool. This is on the northwestern part of, of Israel. This pool of Bethesda, David actually, it was part of David. There's a long story there. But this is a pool that is at least 70 feet deep. So imagine being an invalid, unable to walk, unable to swim, sitting on the pool, waiting for somebody to pick you up and bring you into the pool. That context matters. Think about the, so what do we learn about human nature? What are people like in the story? Think about, yeah, why has this man been sitting there for 38 years? No one's done anything with him. Yeah, nobody's been the good Samaritan. Yeah, he's been the one sitting there waiting. Like, so we see in this story around this man, no one's helped him. Just walked right past him. Others are sneak. I mean, you see people even sneaking in before him, he says it. While I was going another steps down before me. It's like humans, we tend to be a little bit focused on ourselves. My life, my world, what, what's going on with me. And this man's just sitting at 38 years. It's a long time. It's a long time for people to not show compassion on somebody. 
Yeah. Yeah, the, the superstition or the thought of the day is that the pool, when the water, the live springs filled the pool from underneath, it would stir the pool. And the thought was if you entered in as the pool was being stirred, that was the means by which you would be healed. And so he had gone believing that. It doesn't say how long, but probably for a very long time. Waiting to be healed, wait, waiting to be made right, long suffering and patient. And I, I love that Jesus doesn't do what he's expecting. He doesn't pick him up and bring him into the pool. What do we learn about Jesus here? It seems like he could use signs and he does it in like the most terse, like quick way possible, in as few words as possible. And there's no incantations or whatever. It's just like his wonders speak for themselves. He doesn't have to draw attention. Yeah, he doesn't have to say, do this whole incantation. He doesn't have to rile up something out there in order for something down here to work. He just says, and it's done. One of the things that I love about this one, he asks the man a question. Like he gives the man agency. He gives the man the ability to say something. Do you want to be healed? I mean, imagine sitting somebody somewhere for 38 years in this man who's got 12 disciples around him, like people following him. You're hearing a buzz about him in the city, and he asks you, do you want to be healed? Oh, that's crazy. He does the same thing elsewhere. What do you want, he asked in John 1 and in Mark 10. Like, there's a common thread that Jesus asks people rather than forcing it upon people. Do you want to be healed? And we see again, he's got power. Get up, your, get up, take your bed, and walk. Not in the way they were expecting, not in the way that they assumed it would happen, but the assumption is that this is the first time that Jesus would have been at this pool. So while lots of people walked by this man lots of times over 38 years, Jesus' compassion is immediate. He shows up and he cares. And he heals the man. Bringing life to his, the dead parts of his body. And the question for all of us is always, what does this say about our lives? Am I more like people? Or am I more like Jesus? Moving on, number four. John chapter six, verse one. The feeding of the 5,000. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw what? The signs. Are you seeing the breadcrumbs? They saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself knew what he would do. I love that sentence. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, 
There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. Hmm. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. You know the drill. What do we see about human nature? We get hungry and have needs. We have needs. They're hungry. Right? They're, we need to be fed. There's, there's part of humanity, how we're designed, that we need something from outside of us to fulfill the very way in which we can have life. I need to eat bread. I don't need to eat bacon, but I sure do enjoy to eat bacon. Right? We need that. So they have needs. They're dependent upon something. What else? Yeah. You see somebody do some cool stuff like that, you're going to flock to it. Right? There's some excitement building. There's some, like, I, I want to be part of that thing over there. What else? Unpack that for me. Yeah, it's twofold. It's like Jesus is super creative, but their expectations are super low. They've seen how many things up to this point, and they still, they don't assume, like people don't assume, oh God, he's going to figure out a way to do this. He, they, we tend to still think naturally. Like, okay, here's a problem right in front of me, and my logical brain solution would be, we have to have this much money to buy this much bread to feed this many people. Makes sense, right? That's how we tend to think. Like, yeah, I don't see how this is going to, like, he can't do this. Or we don't even think that he's going to do anything. It's just, here's my, here's the life situation. What, what am I going to do? And Jesus tends to be a little bit more creative than that. Yeah. Because they experience something supernatural, you know, God uh, or not duplicated but multiplied yeah. their efforts. Totally. And and what's amazing as we venture into what we see about Jesus, Jesus again uses people around him to participate in what he's doing in the world. He didn't just pray and all of a sudden manna from heaven floated down and made do and they went into habit. Now, while this is a story of Jesus's manna from heaven, he uses it and distributes it through people. 
Like, I want to give gifts to these people, and you're going to be the one that gives it to them. You're going to, you, I want God, I want people to be fed and have life. And I want my glory to be seen. And I'm going to use everyday normal people, people that don't even believe I can do it. I'm going to use them to accomplish what I want, have. We see people's expectations. Like all of a sudden at the end of this, verse 14, they're now saying this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're not looking at this as the Christ, the Messiah. They're trying to look at this as the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy that one like Moses would come into the world. They're, they're starting to have expectations and it's all from these signs. Number five, keep going. Three more. So, so far we've seen the water turning into wine. Uh, we've seen the healing of the royal official son in John 4, 4. The healing of the paralytic at the pool in John 5. The feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. And now right after that, we're still in John 6, verse 6, uh, 15 through 25. It says this. So perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is one of the more mind-boggling passages that could take a lot of time to unpack. Okay? But let's keep about our thread. What are we seeing about people? What do we learn about human nature here? Almost. Fear. We can be afraid. We're... Fear is a normal part of life. There's things that are out of our control. There's things that we do not have power over. There's things that we think are going to take us out. That's human. That's being, that's being part of a fallen world. Fear is here. What else? Yeah. So okay, you know, like, and so his presence casts out fear. Yeah. So we can be changed, and our emotional, physical, spiritual state can be changed. I mean, at its bare basics. We learn about Jesus here, and what Jeff was saying. It's his presence that casts out the fear. You look elsewhere in the scriptures. Almost every time the command, do not be afraid, is there. What's coupled with it? The presence of God. 
It is I, do not be afraid. Or do not fear, for I am with you. Yeah, so what is, what is the reason why people don't have to be afraid? It's because God is with them. Not that their situation changes, primarily. It's but that God is with them. He is with them. He calms the storm, the proverbial storm, if you will. I mean, let's be honest. Jesus can walk on water. Like... I'm kind of a simple guy sometimes. Like, what do we learn about Jesus? The dude can walk on water. Okay? Now, we have to understand, in their imagination, water is not just this pool. For them, in their imagination, in their understanding of the word sea, S-E-A, sea is everything that is chaotic and out of order in the world. So, like, you don't go onto the sea or into the sea because the sea is chaos. It's unorganized. It's out of control. You don't know what's five, seven, ten feet underneath you. So the sea in there in the Jewish imagination was all about chaos and fear inducing. So when the sea is riled up and a strong wind is coming, it just exemplifies the chaos and and cause of fear in the world. So Jesus isn't just choosing the quickest way to get to them. Jesus is exemplifying his, well, what is he exemplifying by walking on the sea? Authority over chaos. Authority over chaos. What else? I heard something else. What else do we see by Jesus walking on the water? Authority over chaos. Power. You want to see what I'm like? I'm just going to go for a nice little stroll on some water. Yeah, they're in desperate need. They're, they're afraid. They have every right. It's like a, um, I've used this metaphor before. It's like a flight attendant. Like if you're, if you're sitting down and you're on a plane and it's a little rocky and you see the flight attendants all <laughs> laughing, talking in the back. But if you start to see a flight attendant get afraid. Because it's so rocky or something changes, that's when you know it's your turn to be afraid. Okay? Similarly, with the fishermen whose job is to be on the sea, they get afraid. There's something to be afraid about. So when they're afraid, you know this isn't just some like, oh, yay, we're rocking a little bit. They have reason to be afraid. And so Jesus strolling out on the water exemplifies that he is in power over chaos, over disorder, over dysfunction, all the unknowns in life. And I have to make this connection for you. What does it say in Revelation 21 about the, the new creation? There will be no what? There will be, no, uh, be no, te- no more tears, no more pain, no more death. And in verse 4 it says, there will be no more sea. It's not saying we don't get bodies of water in new creation. That's not what that passage is saying. What he's saying is when Jesus returns, there's going to be no more chaos and disorder and dysfunction and things that are completely out of control in life anymore because he's come to renew all things. 
That's him going for a stroll on water. Chaotic. And he's power over that. Two more, the longest ones that we're going to shorten just a bit. John chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. This is what it says. As he passed, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, I, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Then he said, where is he? And he answered, I do not know. This whole passage continues to unpack it, all 41 verses. But for the sake of time, I'm only going to read the narrative. So what do we see about humanity here? We're blinded. What was that? Yeah, ironic, right? What do we see? Well, the guy can't see. How did he know where he was going? Great question. You're my son. You're not to be the one supposed to ask a question I don't know the answer to. It doesn't tell us. We don't know. But he goes to the pool and and he's able to see. I mean, what's with the anointing with mud? Not just covers with mud. Not just cakes it with mud. He anoints him with spit. For the record, there are parts of the Bible that are descriptive, which means it said it happened. And there are parts of the Bible that are prescriptive, which said we should also do it. For the record, this is descriptive. Don't go in your missional community and put spit mud in people's eyes. Like, I want to pray for your healing, and we're going to spit in mud, and we're going to anoint your eyes with it. Nope, not how you do it. This is a one-time thing. Don't try to do it. It won't work. It may, but don't try. These people saw it and didn't believe it. Yeah. Like, no way that's true. That we have a hard time believing what's right in front of us sometimes. I see this transformation of this person, and there's no way that that person is now transformed like this. There's no way that God can do that in that person's life. I, I, I can't. Nope, no way. Even if you tell me what happened, even if you share with me how Jesus is the hero of your story like we did a few weeks ago, uh-uh, I'm just not going to believe it. There's no way that happened. Or, or another way to look at it is that guy, they had seen him for so long that they just forgot that he even really existed. They didn't really care much about him anymore, so they didn't even recognize the fact that he's looking at them and talking to them. They probably didn't even connect with them. So yeah. They were blind to him. And now they can see him. We just don't see people. 
Doubt? Yeah. Listen, I'm not going to believe that. I mean, the story goes on to say that his parents are brought into this. And his parents kind of throw him under the bus. Like, he's an adult. You talk to him. I don't want to get in trouble with the authorities. I mean, it goes... I mean, this... I'm, I'm hoping you're seeing the more and more that you look at these signs, the more and more devastating it is to be a picture of what it means to be human. It's, not, it's almost like John is trying to show us something. Like, we can't do anything apart from God. And what does he say in John chapter 5? Jesus himself, he says, I only do what the Father shows me to do. And then what does Jesus say to his disciples in John chapter 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We're in desperate need. And in the midst of humanity's desperate need, Jesus keeps showing up in compassionate, creative, outside the box ways. I think it's cool. He's also doing so much on the Sabbath, demonstrating that he's fulfilling the law and already bringing freedom from it. Totally. Yeah, bringing the Sabbath in is a whole other dynamic. Like, he's now reimagining and reshaping their understanding of the law to fulfill what was originally intended. What do you mean I can't heal on the Sabbath? You're telling me you're not going to care for your people when it's because you're supposed to take a day off? No, I'm going to have compassion on people. Last one. And this is kind of the pinnacle of the signs. The raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. I'm just going to skip around some portions just to make sure we are able for time. So it says this in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill... Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He's heard that before. John chapter 9. He experienced this so that God's glory may be manifested. Okay, verse five. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Huh? Verse seven. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone who walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Uh, Verse uh, 10, but if anyone, oh, he stumbled, verse 11, excuse me. After seeing these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. But now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. 
But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Verse 28, when she, sa- when she had said this, she, sent, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Then they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Verse 39 said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. Lots of stuff to unpack there. But the pinnacle of this passage is Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And he's putting it on display. And what was the resurrection and life to be about? Belief. All of these, as we see in the beginning, as we see in verse uh, chapter 21, excuse me, chapter 20, verse 31, it says, these are written. I've given you these signs, the one, seven that we just read together. I've given these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing him, you may have life in his name. John is absolutely unashamed with why he gives the gospel. He is not giving a, primarily a historical account. What is he giving? He's giving a treatise. He's saying, I want you to believe. We live in a day where evangelism is now seen as proselytizing. Any form of getting somebody to believe in your, quote, private faith is almost overstepping your bounds. How dare you share your faith? You're not allowed to do that. And yet, here's John unashamedly saying, I want you to believe. Why? Because life is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. If I know somebody's dying, I'm going to do something about it. If I know that there's an offer that's beyond everybody's wildest expectations, if I believe that there is a father who radically, compassionately, over the top, loves people beyond anything we could ever imagine, you better believe I want somebody to believe that. And that's what John is saying, because he's saying, hey, I don't want you to only have an afterlife I want you to experience life now. 
I want you, by believing in him, you may have life. The life that you desire, that you would feel at home in God's love, as my friend Chuck says. That you would be able to, in the midst of all the chaos, amidst all the disorder, amidst all that, by believing in his name, you would experience what life was meant to be like. In the fullness of it, in the glad high points and in the super sad low points. And so the question is do you believe that? Not just do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, which we're gonna remember in communion in a moment, but do you believe that Jesus actually is your life? That he fully encompasses all of it. That he wants to fill it with his presence and his goodness and his love. That you can remember, as Psalm 92 says, remember in the morning his faithfulness and remember, in the, remember his love in the morning and his faithfulness at night. That your whole day is filled with the presence, love, and life of Jesus. That you'll happily do what he asks you to do. Because John is saying, I want that for you. And I, brothers and sisters, want that for us as well. We don't go through the seven signs of John so that we can have a good mental exercise. Although it is fun sometimes. We go through these so that you and I would believe that he is our life. So question for you is where are you not experiencing life in the moment? Where are you lacking compassion for other people? Where are you maybe shaming other people like we saw in John 2? Where are you sick and needing healing? Where are you lacking and asking for God's provision? Where do you need the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and life? Because in some amazing, miraculous way, the gospel is that even if you don't get it in the timing that you want, Jesus is the faithful one that will give it to you and give himself to you. When he so desires.